It's the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and podcast for Monday, July 20, 2020. On today's episode, Dr. Mark J. Poznanski is here to talk about his book, Saved by Science, The Hope and Promise of Synthetic Biology. In terms of humanity in crisis, let's look for a few minutes at the condition that I call our big three, and that is our health, the security of our food supply, and the condition of our environment. Librarians Danielle Belanger and Jennifer Eisman are here to talk about four books, including Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, Skinny Dip by Carl Hyacin, I Owe You One, and I've Got Your Number, both by Sophie Kinsella. Instead of telling you about Confessions of a Shopaholic, I thought I'd share two of her relatively recent standalone humorous books that I feel are perfect summer reads. As you know, the Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast appears at 2 p.m. If you're listening to us today on your telephone, you know that you have to call a number. You get to hear the broadcast live. But the podcast is also available as a podcast using a podcast app, whichever podcast app you prefer. And we have a request for you. If you use Apple Podcasts or if you have an Apple ID account, could you please leave us a review and a rating? It'll help other people to find the show. Do a search for Code St. Luke Podcast. Hi, my name is Mark Posnanski. I'm a former Montrealer, and I've spent the last 50-plus years doing biomedical research. I've recently completed a book entitled Saved by Science, The Hope and Promise of Synthetic Biology. But not to worry, this book is aimed not at scientists, but at a general audience who like to read and think. I'm going to start with a pretty depressing message from the book, the very title of which obviously suggests that something needs saving. But then it goes on to a quite optimistic view of the future of mankind, which is driven by the subject of my book, and that is the hope and promise of synthetic biology. To give you a hint as to where I'm going, I quote from Steve Jobs, the brilliant mind behind Apple computers, who a year or so before his death in 2011 stated, I think the biggest innovations of the 21st century will be at the intersection of biology and technology. A new era is beginning. So let's start now with the depressing side of the story, and that is my statement that humanity is in crisis. I shouldn't have to dwell on that too much, as the COVID-19 pandemic and the social and political crises occurring not only in North America, but around the world, are keeping us on edge, keeping us awake at night, and giving us serious concerns for the future. That in itself defines the notion of a crisis. For the next few minutes, I'm going to make it even more worrisome, but I promise to bring it back to a very positive view in just a few minutes. In terms of humanity in crisis, let's look for a few minutes at the condition that I call our big three, and that is our health, the security of our food supply, and the condition of our environment. In terms of our health, I'm sure that we have all been touched by the many unmet challenges that our health faces, all or many of which should cause us grave concern. Many cancers, 
pancreatic, lung, and colon still have very high mortality rates, and it's not clear when or if they will come down. In terms of infectious diseases, we are, of course, in the middle of a worldwide outbreak, COVID-19. But think of Ebola, Zika, and HIV-AIDS. The death tolls and the toll on our economy is immense. It's not at all clear how we're going to develop systems to avoid disasters, epidemics, and pandemics in the future. And then there are, of course, the diseases of the nervous system and the brain, including, of course, all mental illnesses. Over the past 45 years, we've hardly made a dent in either understanding or treating these conditions. Multiple sclerosis, ALS, Alzheimer's, and the mental illnesses such as schizophrenia, bipolar disease, depression, and of course addictive behavior where progress is limited and the numbers are increasing. We don't spend a lot of time wondering about the security of our food supply when we have ridiculous choices in our grocery stores. But the security of the world's food supply is a real issue, and there are those who believe that by the year 2050, the world will not be able to grow enough food to feed the expanding population. And how disturbing is it to note that in 2020, 15 million people will starve to death, including three to four million children. And then there's a condition of our environment, especially as it relates to global warming and our continued dependence on the use of fossil fuels as our primary source of energy. Here too, like the issue of food scarcity, it's difficult for us sitting in our homes in Canada to come to grips with the sheer enormity of the disasters caused by global warming. It's not the impact of the small increase in the temperature on us as individuals, but rather the impact on the environment. I'll give you three examples that best describe the massive problems related to global warming. Think for a minute of the extreme weather in California, resulting in major forest fires year after year, and the hurricanes and devastating flooding on the southeast coast. Just the financial costs in these two disaster areas have exceeded $1 trillion over the past three years. Massive droughts and starvation occurring in sub-Saharan Africa and major migration of Africans flooding across the Mediterranean to southern Europe in makeshift boats has produced a social disaster for tens of millions. With the ice melting in the Arctic, the exposure of the permafrost results in the release of methane into the atmosphere, which is a more lethal greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, resulting from burning fossil fuels. And this, of course, exacerbates the warming of the atmosphere. And I could go on and on and talk about deforestation worldwide, the fires in the Amazon, the continued polluting of our oceans, lakes, and rivers. But this depresses me even more, and so I'll stop there. Once you understand the gravity of these conditions, and that they're only getting worse, you'll appreciate why I say that humanity is in crisis. And the notion of leaving it up to nature to fix is not an option. These problems are all man-made, and I am convinced that the solutions will have to be man-made as well. I am a great believer in man's ingenuity, and knowing something about the research going on in many of these areas, 
I'm very optimistic. And now for the exciting stuff, which should give us all hope. It's really all about the incredible amount of information available to us and the new technology which allow us to, to solve many of the problems that I've been talking about. And that's exactly what Steve Jobs was talking about when he spoke of the intersection of biology and technology. Let's deal with technology first. And just for a moment, visualize that I'm holding one of those USB key, keys that you stick into the side of your computer. And the, in this case, it's one that holds 16 gigabytes of data. What exactly is 16 gigabytes of data? Well, it's 140 complete copies of the 32-volume Encyclopedia Britannica. You'll remember you used to use it in the library, or maybe you had one in your home, and it took up most of the wall in your living room. Well, 140 copies of the encyclopedia is 4,480 volumes and well over 4 billion words. So that's the capacity of information on that little USB key. Now, if you had all those volumes in your home and your grandson picked one of the volumes at random and crossed out one of the letters in one word on one page, it would take you forever and then some to find the error. And yet, if you loaded the information onto your iPhone and asked it to find the error, it could do so in a matter of seconds or less. So one of the major technologies that Steve Jobs talked about was the ability to amass huge amounts of data and ask questions of the data and get the answer back very quickly, as in finding the error in the 4,500 volumes of the encyclopedia. The biology that Steve Jobs was talking about is largely related to the field of genomics. What then is genomics? It's really quite simple. It's nothing less than the actual blueprint of life. Think for a moment of the complete blueprint of a building. It lays out exactly what the building looks like, how it's put together, what it's made of, the pipes and doors and furniture inside the blueprints and the building instructions for absolutely everything. That's exactly what the human genome looks like, only it's much, much more. It's, in fact, it's about six billion bits of information. But think of it, it's a complete picture of what we're made of and how we function. You may be asking what the difference is between genetics and genomics, and for that, I'll use a simple botanical analogy. Think about a garden. The genes represent the individual flowers or the plants, and the genome describes the entirety of the garden. So what is the revolution in biology known as genomics, and why has it become so important? Well, in the early 1990s, there was a critical event that occurred in genomics as a result of the power of computers. A project was announced to actually map the entire human genome. That is to describe the entire blueprint of all that makes us who and what we are. It took about 10 years and $3 billion to complete. And you'd think that that's a pretty long time and a lot of money. But the interim, the power and speed of computers has increased to where today we can sequence a person's entire genome in about two hours at a cost of $200.
That's about 45,000 times faster and a 15 million times cheaper. And that's why today we've sequenced the genomes of hundreds of thousands of people and any number of animals and plants that we want to know more about and more about how they function. We'll also do the same with microbes and viruses, which will become very important in just a few minutes. I want to talk to you about size for a moment. Every single cell in our bodies contains the entire genome, the whole blueprint of our lives, and those cells are microscopic. You can put thousands of them on the tip of a very fine needle. There are also microbes, microscopic entities, each of which lives their lives as single cells. We may house them in our guts or lungs or nasal passages, or they may be associated with other plants or animals, or even living freely in the soil or water. The vast majority are harmless, and some, such as those living in our intestines, are essential for our good health. And those microbes possess their own complete genomes, and there are many similarities between the genomes and ours, especially as it relates to the functioning of individual cells. Now, thinking about the life and history of a host of different microbes, it's fascinating to note that there are probably no insults that human beings have suffered over the past half million years of man's presence on Earth that microbes haven't also faced and solved through evolution over the past three to four billion years. This includes war and greed and heat and cold and drought, the whole gambit of threats and insults that we also endure. Today, with the power of genomics, we have the ability to understand how microbes have adjusted or adapted to those threats and then to possibly use those same processes to save humanity from some of those same insults that we may face, many of which are self-imposed. Synthetic biology is a new technology that utilizes all of this information and the computer speed to bid, build simple organisms, some using the computer lingo called biological apps to allow us to make major advances in the way we deal with the problems that we encounter, making manufacturing greener, energy production more sustainable, agriculture more robust, and medicine more powerful and precise. It's really a new form of engineering. So let's look at some of the potential products of synthetic biology. Imagine that we can develop a novel virus whose sole function is to seek out and destroy special cancer cells, for example, cancers of the breast, lung, or pancreas. Imagine if we were able to grow healthy, nutritious, and inexpensive food in the widest range of possible conditions of temperature, sunlight, water, and fertility. These might even be the foods we grow when we inhabit Mars. Imagine being able to actually reverse global warming and climate change by removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, reducing greenhouse gases, and using the carbon to construct highways and buildings, cement structures as an example, or even recycling the carbon to produce carbon-neutral fuels that do not produce greenhouse gases and further warm the atmosphere. 
Imagine that we are able to design synthetic microbes to remove lead and mercury from our waterways or to clean up toxic waste in mines and other places. Until recently, these examples would surely be the stuff of science fiction. But today, they are more than mere dreams. And there are a host of other things that synthetic biology can do, some of which are within striking distance of implementation. We can take the antifreeze gene from fish that live in the Arctic and incorporate it into plants to allow them to resist freezing and, grow, and being able to grow them in colder climates. We can design microbes that will take nitrogen from the air and supply it directly to plants, doing away with the requirement for expensive chemical fertilizers. We can incorporate the gene for a vitamin A into the rice genome and literally do away with vitamin A deficiency, a condition that kills 750,000 children in the undeveloped countries each and every year. Here's a sample reading from my book. How can it be that microbes possess characteristics that may lead to solutions to some of our most serious problems, which humans have been unable to solve on their own? Aren't we the, the most developed of the many living species? Aren't we at the top of the chain? Well, yes and no. It turns out that while we may appear to be the most developed, our experience is rather limited. We've been around for less than a half a million years, whereas some of these microbes have been around for more than three billion years. And in many instances, they've experienced more and learned more over that time. Microbes have had 10,000 times more time to re evolve and to adapt to conditions on Earth. And we'd be wise to learn from those adaptations and apply that knowledge to enable themselves to adapt or, or, some, or to, to some or even many of the pressures we find ourselves under. Breaking away for a moment from the book reading, I would not be surprised if we re reacted negatively to some of the ideas that I've been talking about. You might even have gotten a bit angry, challenging me, me with the question, are you really serious about creating new life forms? Producing the ultimate GMOs or gen genetically modified organisms, not just foods? Really fooling around with God's work? And I understand your concerns, and I even share some of them. But I also understand that the world has changed in many different ways, not the least of which is population growth, the major changes in the landscape, the fact that over 65% of us live in cities as opposed to less than 15% only 75 years ago, and that global warming is a terrible threat, so that if we are to survive, we must come up with critical solutions in regard to our health, the security of our food supply, and the condition of our environment, all of which are in very serious peril. Here's our fi a final reading from the book. Or put it another way, we are moving to toward evolution by design rather than by natural selection. We'll be able to use genetic technologies, including synthetic biology, to select for specific traits in humans for our health, plants and animals for our food, and microbes for our environment, and even to create completely novel life forms to improve life on Earth. 
Without question, this is a major event in the history of mankind. As you'll see below, it started off slowly, for example, using crossbreeding techniques to produce better foods. But today, it might increasingly represent an imperative if we are to solve some of the crit critical issues that we face. Writers Enriquez and Goulin state that we are transitioning from a hominoid that is conscious of in its environment into one that drastically shapes its own evolution. It's tremendously exciting and more than a bit worrisome. But if it allows us to get through some of the crises that humanity faces, then we'll have no choice but to go for it and act with caution and sensibility. If you want to learn more, you can follow me on my website, www.savedbyscience.org. And on the 22nd of September, my new book will appear with the title, Saved by Science, The Hope and Promise of Synthetic Biology. It'll be available at your library, at your bookstore, at Amazon, at Indigo, or at my website. Hopefully everywhere. Thank you. Welcome to another episode of Book Talking with your Code St. Luke librarians. I'm Danielle Belanger, Manager of Library Programs and User Experience. Today, my colleague Jennifer Eisman, Manager of Digital Learning and Resource Discovery, and I will share a few fun reads that we hope will lighten up your summer. I don't know about you, but when it's hot and humid and we're going through yet another heat wave, the last thing I feel like reading is a deep, tragic, and unsettling novel. It's at these times that I like to pick up a light read, something I know could potentially make me laugh out loud. Today, I'm gonna to share with you a couple of delightful summer reads from Sophie Kinsella. If you recognize this name yet haven't read any of her books, it's likely because of her wildly popular shopaholic series. There's a whole slew of them, beginning with The Secret Dream World of a Shopaholic and Shopaholic Abroad which combined became Confessions of a Shopaholic and a film by the same name. This series also included Shopaholic Ties the Knot, Shopaholic and Sister, Shopaholic and Baby. I'm sure you get the point. The series focuses around the misadventures of Becky Bloomwood, a financial journalist who ironically has no clue on how to manage her own finances. Although these are fun and lighthearted, if you read one, you may as well have read them all, in my opinion. Sophie Kinsella is, for those who didn't know already, in fact, the pen name of English author Madeline Sophie Wickham, born Townley. Instead of telling you about Confessions of a Shopaholic, I thought I'd share two of her relatively recent standalone humorous books that I feel are perfect summer reads. The first book I'd like to tell you about is I've Got Your Number by Sophie Kinsella. The premise behind every book by this author really starts with a general what if. The interesting part about this book is that there are a whole bunch of what ifs that are tackled throughout the book. The first three cringeworthy what ifs are what if you lost your engagement ring and your cell phone and you are completely desperate. Then we add in, what if you found an abandoned phone in the trash or in a bin, as they say in England? The question then becomes, would you take it and think, oh, that's mine now? Would you read all the messages on it? Would you mind your own business? Or would you find yourself perhaps meddling in someone else's affairs? 
I've got your number is about a girl named Poppy Wyatt who finds a phone belonging to a total stranger named Sam, who from that moment onward becomes totally entangled in her life. It's amazing what you can find out about somebody just from a few texts and messages. It's amazing how your whole life can be turned upside down by one little text. And what you'll also learn from Poppy is that it's amazing to find out how hard it is to hide the fact that you've lost your priceless engagement ring from your fiance. The dynamic between bride-to-be Poppy Wyatt and businessman Sam Roxton is fantastic. There are hilarious and heartwarming moments between these two as they grow closer. They were forced to awkwardly figure out a system for sharing this phone because of Poppy's engagement ring dilemma and Sam's need to follow up on his work communications. Poppy, of course, thinks she can improve upon Sam's communication style, something that hasn't earned him any brownie points. And Sam tries to show Poppy that she shouldn't always put other people's needs ahead of her own. Each of them pushes the other to be a better person, something every great relationship should strive to achieve. Now, I'd like to read a few pages from chapter seven in order to give you a sense of the writing style and the level of humor. The fake ring's perfect. Okay, not perfect. It's a tad smaller than the original and a bit tinnier, but who's going to know without the other one to compare? I've worn it most of the afternoon and it feels really comfortable. In fact, it's lighter than the real thing, which is an advantage. Now I've finished my last appointment of the day and I'm standing with my hands spread out on the reception desk. All the patients have gone, even sweet Mrs. Randall with whom I've just had to be quite firm. I told her not to come back here for two weeks. I've told her she was perfectly capable of exercising at home alone and there was no reason she shouldn't be back on the tennis court. Then of course it all came out. It turned out she was nervous of letting down her doubles partner. And that's why she was coming in so often, to give herself confidence. I told her she was absolutely ready and I wanted her to text me her next score before she came back to see me. I said if it came to it, I'd play tennis with her, at which point she laughed and said I was right, she was being nonsensical. Then when she'd gone, Angela told me that Mrs. Randall is some shit-hot player who once played in junior Wimbledon. Yowzer, probably a good thing we didn't play since I can't even hit a backhand. Angela's gone home now too. It's just Annalise, Ruby and me, and we're surveying the ring in silence, except for a spring storm outside. One minute it was bright and breezy, the next rain was hammering at the windows. Excellent, Ruby is nodding energetically. Her hair is up in a ponytail today and it bounces as she nods. Very good, you never know. I know, Annalise retorts at once. It's not the same green. Really, I peer at it in dismay. The question is, how observant is Maxis, Magnus? Ruby raises her eyebrows. Does he ever look at it? Uh, I don't think so. Well, maybe you keep your hands away from him for a while, just to be on the safe side. Keep my hands away from him? How do I do that? You'll have to restrain yourself, says Annalise tartly. It can't be that hard. How about his parents, says Ruby. They're bound to want to see it. We're meeting in the church, so the lights will be pretty dim, but even so, I bite my lips, suddenly nervous. Oh God, does it look real? Yes, Ruby says at once. No, says Annalise equally firmly. Sorry, but it doesn't. Not if you look carefully. Well, don't let them, says Ruby. If they start looking too closely, create a diversion. Like what? Faint, pretend to have a fit. Tell them you're pregnant. Pregnant, I stare at her, wanting to laugh. Are you nuts? 
I'm only trying to help, she says defensively. Maybe they'd like you to be pregnant. Maybe Wanda's gunning to be a granny. No, I shake my head. No way, she'd freak out. Perfect, then she won't look at the ring. She'll be too consumed with rage. Ruby nods in satisfaction as though she solved all my problems. I don't want a raging mother-in-law, thank you very much. She'll be raging either way, Annalise points out. You just have to decide which is worse, pregnant daughter-in-law or flaky daughter-in-law who lost the priceless heirloom ring. I'd say go with pregnant. So there was an excerpt. The next book I'd like to talk to you about is by the same author, Sophie Kinsella, and it's called I Owe You One. I Owe You One is a story of two complete strangers, Fixie and Seb, who meet in a coffee shop and do a series of favors for each other, big, small, life-saving, and life-changing. Kinsella admits to have been thinking about the idea for a while, but having trouble honing in on exactly how the two characters might meet. She admits that one day an American man asked her to keep an eye out for his laptop in a coffee shop, and then there it was, the beginning of her book. She also says thank you to that American man, as well as I owe you one. Kinzella has said she enjoys writing flawed heroines, and Fixie is a perfect example of this, a character with a compulsion to always fix everything and not always with the best results. It's only with Seb's insights that Fixie is able to see that there's a lot of fixing left to do when it comes to herself, which frankly, she's done a pretty terrible job at for quite some time. Here's an excerpt from chapter 12 when Fixie is told that her too hot to boyfriend, too hot to handle boyfriend, excuse me, is actually a total scumbag. Okay, I say tightly, well, you were clearly never going to give him a chance. He was right. You never even tried to make it work. I didn't try, Seb sounds outraged. Here's what I did. I gave him a mentor. I gave him advice. I sent him on training days. I discussed financial exams with him. And what does he do? Mock our ethos, derail every meeting he goes to, name drop us all to death, fail to complete a single one of the assignments I actually gave him, and start sleeping with not one, but two members of my staff. Not one, but two. He clutches his hair. It's been turmoil here. One found out about the other. We've had tears at meetings. He stops and peers at me. Wait, uh, you've gone very pale. Are you okay? I'm staring back at him with my head thudding. Did he just say he didn't? He couldn't have. What do you mean? I say at last. Sleeping with who? Who do you mean? I don't think it's actually relevant who they were, says Seb, eyeing me curiously. I've been too indiscreet already. I don't believe you, my voice shakes. I don't believe you. You don't believe me. Why on earth wouldn't you? Seb sounds incredulous. Then his face suddenly changes. Oh, Struth, are you and Ryan? You're not. He breaks off looking agonized. He said he was single. He told the whole office he was a single guy. I would never have. Uh, I'm sorry. That was. He stops again as though he doesn't know how to finish and there's silence. My eyes are hot. My gaze is flitting around the office. I can't look at him. I'm thinking he's lying. He's lying. But I'm also thinking, why would he lie? Why would he lie? I'm remembering all the times Ryan was too tired for sex and how understanding I was, how I made him lamb hot pot and rubbed his back and thought, give it some time. Have I been the biggest, stupidest fool in the world? Did I want the famous Ryan Chalker so badly I blinded myself to the facts? 
can I just like ask a quick question? I managed at last. Do your staff play pool together three times a week? Three times a week? Zeb seems taken aback. No, not that I know of. Maybe once a month. Why? No reason. I swallow hard. I'm trying to stay composed even as everything comes crashing down inside me. Ryan wasn't playing pool. He was with other women. Maybe that Erica he kept talking about. He never wanted to be cozy and intimate and, and, and domesticated. I was a free meal and a back rub twice a week. At last, Seb moves forward a step. I shoot a glance at him and see a troubled, earnest gaze. I'm sorry, he says, but that man is, he's not good in my opinion. How long have you known him? Oh, my life, retort roughly, since I was 10. So there's an excerpt from my second book recommendation. Like I've got your number, I owe you one is an enjoyable yet predictable love story between an unlikely pair. In both of these novels, the female lead needs to stop putting her own needs last and has a long way to go in terms of growing up and making sure she's treated as an equal and not a doormat. Luckily, everything does work out for the best in each of these two stories, and I've, I found myself relieved for both Poppy and Fixie by the end. Jen, how about your summer read recommendations? Can you please introduce your first one, Skinny Dip by Carl Hyacin? Thanks, Danielle. Skinny Dip is a classic that packs in everything you want from Hyacin. Crooked businessmen, crooked scientists, everyone crooked actually, an attempted murder gone flamboyantly wrong, colorfully bizarre supporting characters who are also crooked, and exotic animals all stewing in the swampy Florida heat. Set in the 1990s, it's about a shady biologist named Chaz Perone, who has taken his wife Josie on what she thinks is a cruise to rekindle their marriage. Instead, what he does is throw her overboard in an attempt to murder her because he thinks she's found out about her, his shady dealings. Traditionally, the main character are someone, someone you are supposed to like and associate with. In Shaz, the author has created one of the biggest losers you can imagine. Here is this good-for-nothing husband who has plotted to murder his wife and, and then messes it up so badly, you wonder how he was able to plot anything. As soon as he throws her overboard, things begin to unravel for him. For example, when he's questioned by the police investigator, he tries to give misinformation, but he can't even do that right. The character is so pathetic that you just either want to laugh out loud or reach into the book and strangle him for being such a jerk. At one point, Chaz begins to think he is losing his mind because he starts to see little things belonging to his wife appear in their home, things he got rid of after she died. He wonders if she actually died in the Atlantic at all. He is so stressed out that when his mistress comes to visit him, he has to swallow a whole handful of Viagra. And you can just imagine how hilarious that scene was in the book. This is some of the funniest fiction I have read in a long time. The roster of characters include a sleazebag who is trying to profit off the destruction of the Everglades in Florida and has an addiction to women in Viagra, his sporty wife, who proves that hell hath no fury like a woman thrown off a cruise ship, a cop who loves albino pythons, and a hitman named Tool who steals crosses from makeshift highway memorials and painkiller patches from elderly patients. The writing is smart, witty, 
and each word is expertly chosen. The whole book is a hoot from start to finish. Carl Hyacin has written more than 20 novels which are considered humorous fiction, humorous crime fiction, and often feature themes of environmentalism and political corruption in his native Florida. If you love to laugh, then you should definitely pick up some of his books. For my second pick, I have selected a novella by Alan Bennett called The Uncommon Reader. If you have never heard of Alan Bennett, he is the author of the Tony Award winner, The History Boys, and is one of Britain's best loved literary voices. He is an English actor, author, playwright, and screenwriter. Uncommon Reader is a hilarious story about the Queen of England and what would happen if she suddenly became an avid reader and stopped performing all of her civic duties. The Queen starts reading quite by accident when one day she's in a mobile library on the side lawn of the castle and she goes out to investigate what her corgis are yapping about. There she meets Norman, a boy who works in the palace kitchen and he is the person who introduces her to books. She tentatively takes out a book, and although she finds this first book terrible, she keeps going back for more, with Norman making the recommendations along the way. Thus begins a passionate obsession with reading. The Queen is very critical of what she reads, and it's very amusing to see how she interacts with the books. For example, while reading Henry James, she shouts out loud, Oh, do get on with it! She finds herself devouring works by tantalizing range of authors from the Bronte sisters to Jean Gérard. Unfortunately for the queen, this newfound passion for reading is not supported by her staff. They greatly disapprove. In fact, they think she is missing appointments and heaven forbid wearing the same cardigan two days in a row because her mind is slipping and she's developing Alzheimer's. They don't realize that she just doesn't care about speeches and boat inauguration ceremonies anymore. It's actually quite comical, all of the staff banding together to thaw her many attempts at reading. But the queen is a smart and intelligent woman and she eventually realizes what is going on around her and decides that she will take matters into her own hands. I don't want to spoil any more of this story. Alan Bennett's novella is not only cheeky and charming but celebrates the pleasures of reading. Imagine a world where literature is a bridge between commoners and royalty. Even the choice of the title common reader is genius because it is a real play on words. It can mean a person who reads for pleasure as opposed to a literary critic. It can also mean a book that everyone in a group is expected to read so that they all have something in common, much like a book club. In British English, common holds a certain connotation. A commoner is, some, is anyone other than royalty or nobility and also has maybe a vulgar meaning as in like common taste. Common Reader is an absolute gem of a book. You are missing a real treat if you don't pick this up this summer. And those are my choices for Humorous Reads. Well, that is today's episode of the Code St. Luke Telephone Broadcasting Service and Podcast. Thank you to our guests and thank you to you for tuning in today. If you're listening on the 2 p.m. call-in, we have another special item for you. Have a great day.